You're listening to ReachMD, and I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson. Joining me today is Dr. Charles Walker, who is an assistant professor of surgery in the Department of Urology at Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Walker, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, our discussion today will focus on the correlation between erectile dysfunction, ED, and diabetes. First of all, what is the relationship between erectile dysfunction, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes? Can you talk about the common pathophysiological thread between the three conditions? Most people accept that cardiovascular disease is more common in diabetics. And we recognize that diabetes and obesity and cholesterol or hyperlipidemia are all risk factors for heart disease. That, I think, is is well-established. What may be less well-known is certainly well-known to those of us in men's health and most people in urology, but maybe not as much amongst other specialty areas or specialty providers, is that ED is clearly very intimately associated with both diabetes and heart disease. We are aware that that ED is a common complication of diabetes, and this is something that we see across the spectrum of diabetes, from men with sort of prediabetes and insulin resistance all the way to your insulin-dependent diabetics. So that's well established. What has really come about in the last 10 to 15 years is that ED is also not only more common in men with heart disease, but it's actually a predictor of heart disease. And so there's this very interesting and dynamic relationship between all of these conditions. And we recognize that ED, diabetes, and heart disease all have similar risk factors. But beyond that, ED actually is a predictor or a marker for heart disease. And we can talk about this a little bit later on, but there is evidence that ED may in fact be a predictor for diabetes. So this is a very new finding and very exciting. So that's sort of the landscape that I work in. We can sort of get more into the nitty-gritty of the pathophysiology, if you like, and I can kind of break down this relationship a little bit better. But that's the sort of general landscape or the context, if you will, that we have found ourselves in as men's health providers who deal with ED as it relates to diabetes and heart disease. That's very interesting, and I think many of our listeners have not heard that before. To start with, why are diabetics more prone to develop ED? There are a number of things that happen in diabetes, and I know that you are familiar with that, and, and most internal medicine providers and, and other people that work in this in this area are, are aware that you know there are vascular complications and neurologic complications that happen in diabetes, and those are two things that are very important for a normal erection. So, you know, to begin with, we sort of have to look at what happens during normal erection and why things go astray in diabetes. Normal erection requires that you have adequate inflow of blood through the cavernosal arteries, and that, in turn, is stimulated by release of nitric oxide from the cavernosal nerve endings. So that's sort of the the most important thing that has to happen in order to have an erection. But you also have to have good, healthy endothelium. You have to have good, healthy cavernosal smooth muscle. You know, the penis really, if you think about it, is a tremendously dynamic, highly integrated structure that has smooth muscle and endothelial cavernous spaces that are lined by smooth muscle and endothelium. So really, it's, if you think about it, it's almost like a highly organized vascular structure. So in order to have an effective erection that can be maintained and sustained, those three things have to be working well. So you have to have healthy smooth muscle, healthy endothelium, and you have to have the nervous innervation and release of nitric oxide all have to be intact. So in diabetics, 
we find that on every level there is a process that is somehow abnormal with respect to all of those different areas. So, you know, diabetics have neuropathy. So everybody knows that peripheral neuropathy is very prevalent in diabetics. So right there, there's impairment of nitric oxide release in those individuals. That's kind of the first thing that has to happen. So that alone can predict ED in diabetics. Beyond that, there is endothelial dysfunction. And that, I think, is really the thing that connects ED and diabetes and heart disease. These individuals have chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation, in turn, directly affects the blood vessels, but it also leads to disease of the endothelium. And so you get endothelial injury, you have smooth muscle cell proliferation in the walls of these arteries, and that in turn prevents the release of nitric oxide from the endothelium. So there's two sources of nitric oxide that are crucial during the erectile process are both the release of nitric oxide from the nerve endings and also the endothelium-derived nitric oxide, or what we call ENOS, or ENOS is the enzyme that catalyzes that process. But the critical thing is that you need to have nitric oxide being released from both places. And so the nitric oxide that you get from the endothelium potentiates the relaxation of those blood vessels that bring blood through the cavernosal arteries. So you have to have both processes happen, and disease to the endothelium prevents that release of nitric oxide. The other thing that happens is that distension and dilation of those arteries also promotes release of nitric oxide through sheer stress. So what ends up happening is that you're unable to relax those arteries because you don't have release of nitric oxide from the nerve or from the endothelium. So you have a chronic state where your blood vessels are vasoconstricted, and then you lose that shear stress, which would lead to further nitric oxide release. So it's a complicated process, and it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, because once you lose one, then you begin to lose the other sources of nitric oxide, and this only makes the disease process worse. And so we see all of these areas being somehow defective in diabetics, and that's really what convenes, if you will, to create the perfect storm. So this leads to my next question, which is actually twofold. Should primary care doctors be screening for ED and diabetics, and are they doing a good job of that now? But from what you brought up, the flip side is, shouldn't urologists be screening for diabetes in men who present to them with the sole complaint of ED? Absolutely. It's sort of really hit on an important area for me. And if I could do anything in terms of, of being able to educate fellow providers, it would be that we can do a lot more in terms of the screening that we do. So I think that primary care doctors should always ask diabetic patients if they have sexual dysfunction. And so it can very simply ask that question. And there are validated questionnaires also that we use in urology. But even without the questionnaires, you can ask the question as to whether or not men are having normal erections, if they're having difficulty maintaining their erections. And what you find is that there is a very high incidence of ED in these men. Absolutely, primary care doctors can screen and should, and they can also treat diabetic men with ED, and they can refer them to urologists when first-line therapies are not effective. The flip side of that is that we should also be screening men who have ED for heart disease and diabetes, particularly in younger men, because what the studies have shown is that in men between the ages of 40 and 60, the predictive value of ED for heart disease and diabetes is probably its greatest. And this provides us with a really tremendous tool and a window of opportunity where we can actually diagnose men with silent heart disease or cult heart disease, as we may refer to it, and also diabetes. 
So this is a, really a tremendously valuable diagnostic tool, if you will, to go from ED to making the diagnosis of heart disease and diabetes. What we do in our practice, we've been very fortunate, and I personally have been very fortunate to establish a collaboration with a cardiologist here at Yale, Dr. Carlos Mena Hurtado, who is someone who's very interested in this area, and he and I together have developed what we call the Cardiovascular and Sexual Health Program. This is a, both a virtual and a real-time program where we are in the clinic and we actually provide both diagnosis and treatment of ED and also cardiovascular risk stratification. So it's really important that when men come in, younger men, particularly with ED, that we can actually begin to look into their cardiovascular risk factors and when we find them, to then work with our cardiologist to really implement aggressive risk factor modification. Yeah, so it's a lot more than destroying a hemoglobin A1C. Exactly. So you may say, well, okay, gosh, what do you do if you don't have a program like that? And what do you do if you don't have a cardiologist who's interested in working with you? And what I would say is we can test for fasting glucose to find out if people have elevated fasting glucose. We can do a hemoglobin A1C to find out if they're diabetic or pre-diabetic. We can actually do basic assessments of blood pressure and other peripheral vascular exam. So we can do a lot, actually, as urologists or even, you know, as primary care doctors in terms of being able to provide some risk stratification. In fact, most primary care doctors are, are perfectly happy and very well qualified to perform cardiovascular risk stratification. They do it all the time. So that's easy for them. It's a little bit harder for urologists because we don't always do that, and many urologists don't even carry a stethoscope. So, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit more challenging. But Which is okay, yeah. <laughs> as, as you are well aware. But we can do some very basic things to provide a ground level of risk assessment. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Charles Walker, who is an assistant professor of surgery in the Department of Urology at Yale University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Walker, how should one approach management and treatment of ED in diabetics? The first thing is that in diabetics, we need to be screening for ED, and we need to make sure that we're asking the appropriate questions about sexual function. And when we find that there is evidence of ED, even if it's early ED, that we begin to think about how to treat it. The first thing that we should do in all these men is lifestyle modification. And for sure, in younger men who have more mild forms of ED, this can make a big difference. And actually, it really can reverse their ED and prevent the progression of their disease. So we should be talking to all these men about their diet and their level of exercise. And it's important that we're actually asking them what their diet is and what, what their level of exercise is. It's really interesting that we don't necessarily always ask those questions as part of a regular history and physical. So we have to make a point to ask those questions and really find out what men are doing. And what you will find in most of these men is that they probably don't exercise as much as they know they should. Their diet is probably not as healthy as it ought to be. And more importantly, they may not know what a healthy diet is. So it's really important that we identify those things and, and get them to understand that both their diabetes and their erectile dysfunction, to a certain degree, are a function of poor dietary habits and, and lack of exercise. And that if they can really embrace lifestyle modification, they can improve the quality of their erections, and they can improve their glycemic control, and, and they can reduce their cardiovascular risk. So, you know, what I do in my clinic is, is I really get a good baseline history. I make them aware that these are issues, and then we talk about what they can do. And so, you know, we talk about what kind of exercise they should be doing and, and what kind of a diet they should be on. And I'm a real big proponent 
of diets that have a higher content of plant-derived foods. So, you know, I think that, that plant-based diets are extremely valuable. Certainly the Mediterranean-style diets are important, but I really want to encourage men to reduce their intake of red meat, increase their intake of fruits and vegetables and, and whole grains, and to avoid processed carbohydrates. And a lot of times they don't know that that's even important. You know, they actually are not aware that they are doing harm to their health and to their erections by what they put in their mouth. And they're not exercising enough. We need to give them some idea of how to exercise. And then we have to find ways to get them to stick to it. You know, one of the biggest problems for men and people in general is that they know what they need to do, but they have a hard time committing to a program of, of lifestyle modification. And that's where having a health psychologist you work with or somebody that does, you know, sports medicine is tremendously valuable. And I actually have those collaborations within my program at Yale. So we are really fortunate to be able to tell an individual, listen, if you're having a hard time losing weight, I'm going to have you meet with a health psychologist who can also get you involved in a program where you can actually have a peer group that can help you lose the weight. So those are really crucial things. And that's where we start from a management standpoint. So you know, screening, assessment of cardiovascular risk, and then discussion of lifestyle modification as a first line. So keeping a diary may be helpful, and it may help them avoid something such as surgery as an option, because sometimes is that an option for these patients? Well, surgery is an option. It's a little bit downstream, but we sort of go through a progression from lifestyle modification to medical therapy, and then to really second-line treatments for erectile dysfunction. And you know, lifestyle modification, you know, many times when men see us with diabetes, they've had ED for a long time. So it's going to take more than, than simply improving their lifestyle. I mean, that has to be a staple of any management care plan, but it may not be enough for a lot of these men. And a lot of these men come to me at the point where they're insulin dependent, where they've had long-standing diabetes. They may have had ED for three or four or even five years. And so we need to then begin to think about how to treat them medically. So the first-line treatment for ED in, in all men are the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors or the PD-5 inhibitors. These are the class of medications that include Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, and there are several newer agents in that group. So these medicines are known to be effective for men with ED. It's sort of well accepted amongst men's health specialists that diabetics do not respond as well to these meds as men without diabetes. But even having said that, about 60% of diabetics without severe ED who present with ED will actually respond to these therapies. So they are still useful for men with ED and diabetes, but I think that we have to prepare ourselves as providers for the likelihood that we're going to need a second-line agent. So to sum up what you said, um, what I'm hearing is that it's a team approach that is employed to co-manage ED and cardiovascular risk reduction in these patients, correct? Absolutely. It, the, the team approach is crucial. If we're really going to address all of the issues and concerns that men face with diabetes and ED, then it has to be a multidisciplinary type of approach. And even if you don't have a program or you, you don't have a center where you can kind of do all this, uh, we don't have a center. We'd, we'd certainly would love to have one, but we, have, we do have a program. You can find colleagues to collaborate with and you you can find people who have an interest in this area and you can identify where you should refer these men. Now to just backtrack for a minute because you had asked a question about surgery and I actually was talking about the treatment algorithm and I just want to finish that part of the discussion because I think it's important for 
both primary care providers and urologists and anybody else who takes care of these men to, to be aware of what the algorithm is. Once we find that the medications are not effective, and again, a lot of these men will not respond to, to meds because they have had longstanding disease. And so we know that the degree of ED in these men is in many ways a function of their glycemic control, how long they've had diabetes. So the longer they've had diabetes, the worse glycemic control they have, then the worse their ED is. So it's important that we are prepared to offer them the next line of therapy. Uh, and so typically, when the drugs don't work, we have injection therapy. So we can inject prostaglandins and other vasoactive agents to the penis that will cause smooth muscle relaxation. And there are a number of formulations that do this. Caverject or, or alprostadil is one that's, that's pretty common. We also use a combination of three drugs that we call Trimix that also has papaverin and ventolamine uh, in addition to uh, prostaglandin. And there are vacuum devices, and these are external devices that can be placed over the penis and can be used actually to bring blood into the penis. So these drugs are, are variably effective. They tend to be, again, a little bit less effective in diabetics, but the bigger issue in diabetics is that they tend to be not as compliant with these therapies, and, and with good reason. You know, the injections can be painful. The vacuum devices can be cumbersome. We often find that we do need to then consider surgery in these men, and Fortunately for men with ED and particular diabetics, we do have penile implants, which we can surgically place in the penis and which have been around for a long time. And these are a really effective way to deal with ED in these men. And there are surgeons, and including myself, who have expertise in this area. And it's something that we need to be prepared to counsel men, particularly if we're finding that they're not responding to the first or second line therapies. Dr. Walker, we want to thank you for joining us today. You've given us a wealth of information, and we really appreciate it having you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. I am your host, Dr. Shira Johnson. To download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com, where we welcome you to comment, like, and share our programming. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge, and thank you for listening.